This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson, and a special guest today, Mako's Legislative Director, Natasha Mayhew. How are you both today? All good here. Yeah, doing great. Did you get a bunch of coffee this morning? I know it was a late night for all of us. This is this is a caffeine-powered day for the full Mako contingent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So today on the podcast, we have a special edition for you. We're going to break down the 2018 gubernatorial election. On the first segment, we'll give you a breakdown of some state races. And on the second half of the episode, we'll talk about some interesting county races. I don't want to waste any more time. Let's jump right in. Michael and Natasha, the obvious headliner here was Larry Hogan put up big numbers. I mean, no giant surprise if you'd been following the polls and you know reading news coverage and so forth over the last couple of weeks, the conversation had shifted to, might this be a historic win, might be the greatest proportions that we've seen and so forth, sort of transcending whether, whether he'd win or lose. I think there was always a looming element of turnout. And if there, if there might be some massive turnout change or, you know, a blue wave sort of thing, could that overwhelm what seemed like a, a big structural popularity advantage for the governor? And by, oh, I don't know what time it was, 830 or so, that seemed to be set aside. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. Before the state board even released numbers, you had various news organizations like the AP and NBC. Everyone was calling it for Hogan. Yeah, it was it was a little odd trying to figure out because I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm online trying to I'm hitting the you know the F five button time and time again, going nuts trying to find out where where are all these results. Yeah, and, I think I broke my F five button on my computer <laughs> right. so, for so, what it's worth. So that was that was, that was a little strange. And then you know, Fox called it first. AP had it pretty soon after. Anyway, so I mean, you know, the numbers landed as I recall right about where the polls were suggesting. So, so um, you know, wins by open links and 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 uh, really sets the tone for for years ahead, I guess. And interestingly, even though Hogan put up big numbers, there were no coattails down ballot, or at least not any significant ones, right, Natasha? So we saw in Howard County, in that county executive race, Calvin Ball defeated Alan Kittleman, the incumbent, who is a Republican. Even though Hogan did very well there. Right, right. And Hogan did back a couple of the um, Republican county executives that lost their race in this election. So, yeah, we saw Steve Hsu, Alan Kittleman, both lost Michael, and Hogan was heavily involved also with Al Redmer in Baltimore County. Right. We did not see Hogan's success translate down ballot there. Well, I guess it's it's tough to know, right? Um, I mean, everybody thought that all, all three of those races had the potential to be close. And... I guess it's it's tough to know what these races might have looked like in the absence of Governor Hogan's popularity and effect, but you certainly would think if if he's going to win, you know, by open links for governor, um, he 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 would be able to translate some of that popularity and support just one click further down the ballot um, to 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 a county executive race, uh, especially if he goes out and. Put, you know, they, they, they co-sign on, you know, all these, all these signs you see on the, by the side of the road where it says Hogan and Shoe. I mean, I live in Anne Arundel County mm-hmm. and saw those all the time. Hogan endorsed. And, and you know, Hogan endorsed. I mean, Republicans across the state are using Hogan's name 
understandably, it's a brand that's, that's working great. It worked at the top of the ballot, um, but you know, he didn't necessarily uh, didn't, didn't, wasn't able to get any of those three to, to, to come through. Um, Anne Rundle was a real surprise. Uh, and, and the other two, you know, were, were surprises as well. And maybe not the same magnitude. So Michael, perhaps there is an explanation for this. What is the difference between a Republican governor who is massively popular? And then these Republicans who came into office roughly the same time, why is it that Hogan is able to get these, these huge numbers but that's not translating to these Republicans who have been around just as long. I'm not sure it's got anything to do with the Republican party. Mm -hmm. I think there's a structural difference between state government and being a governor and county government and being a county executive. So much of the work of county government is really hands-on. It's granting or denying a zoning permit or approval. It's about who gets a license. It's about picking up the trash on time or getting the roads plowed. Um, you go out, you, you negotiate with your labor unions, you decide what to do on budgets and you give raises. I think all those things um, can just, I think they accumulate incremental friction for any, anybody in those jobs. So you sit as a county executive, if you're Alan Kittleman or you're Steve Shue, you had four years of making tough decisions and you know alan kittleman had to put on the you know put on the the hip waders and get out there in the middle of the water in ellicott city and talk about this is a crisis we're going to try and solve it but you know we're, we're gonna have to pull together and do this sort of stuff um he's getting wet and dirty in the middle of county government um, those are on the ground services. And that's, I, I just think that's a fundamentally different job than being the governor of any state where you can be selective about the issues where you engage. You can, you, you can choose things that, that remain popular and keep you away from people's bad side. And, you know, governor Hogan has done some of that, but some of that's just, it's the hand you're dealt as the governor of a state. Right. I mean, just that on the ground presence for county elected officials is a lot different than being at the state level. Speaking of coattails, there was a Drive for Five campaign that was run by Republicans in the Senate, and the governor obviously was on board as well. That drive failed. And this is another example of where we saw Larry Hogan do very well, but not necessarily down ballot. I mean, yeah, I mean, the notion here is, is if five senators had shifted from Democrat to Republican in the Maryland State Senate, um, then this is sort of presumes that Governor Hogan was going to get reelected then you'd no longer have a veto-proof majority in the Maryland Senate. It would empower the Republican Party, if they would just hang together on a vote, to uphold the governor's veto. And that could change sort of the, the, the balance of power between the two branches on policy coming from the two sides. If one chamber, you'd need a Republican vote to override a veto, suddenly you'd have a different kind of brokering going on. Right. And so they were able to get two seats out of those five with Brochin's seat in Baltimore County and then uh, Mary Beth Carrozza taking Jim Mathias' seat. Yeah, that was an interesting race too down on the lower shore. Highly, right. highly watched race. Right. And big money. I mean, yeah, for, absolutely. for a relatively rural state Senate seat, I, I lost track, but there was, you know, there was half a million dollars or so being spent between the two candidates in that race. So a lot of money. I mean, it takes, takes a lot to try and communicate across that area. 
I mean, you're not, you know, you're not putting ads in the Washington Post. That's not the same thing. But just the door to door and and putting up signs and all that kind of stuff. You know, lots of local media involved. That was a that was a hotly contested race. Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Speaking of pretty close, in Baltimore County, one of those other seats, Kathy Klausmeyer's seat, Senator Klausmeyer eked out a win against Delegate Christian Mealy, another one with a lot of money, very close and very interesting results. In addition, they did lose a seat in the Senate with Gail Bates losing her seat to Katie Hester Fry. And that was another big push on the side of the Democrats to get that seat turned over. Absolutely. And obviously, we have seen a lot of vetoes from the governor with this General Assembly and then overrides. So if they were able to do that, certainly a significant shift. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, if you're watching state policy, um, the governor comes back and he hasn't exactly indicated that he wants to have a second term that'll be dramatically different or, or you know, a really big departure from what we've seen. So part of this is about, you know, what's left of the governor's agenda? What might he have in mind for redistricting? You know, what are we going to do with fiscal issues and education, those kind of things going forward? And the the composition of the Maryland Senate, we talked back in June about the Democratic Party having potentially a more progressive temperament among the Democrats. So this question of whether the Democrats are going to have a veto-proof supermajority in that chamber like they do in the House, um, the House actually made some gains this go-around, um, I think that that matters an awful lot for what are we going to see for the next few years. Um, the Maryland Senate in the last few terms has sort of been the tempering part of the general assembly. Like, you know, the, 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 the tricky stuff, well, you have to take what the Senate will give you. And right. the, the house, you know, house has frequently been in the position of saying, well, this is all that's coming out of the Senate. So we just have to take it. Um, maybe the new Senate is going to be a little bit different. And without five more seats, uh, the governor has about the same amount of say in this, in the matter as he has before, which isn't all that much. Very true. So very interesting results there. Let's shift now to ballot questions. This was another hot topic. We had two ballot questions that were on the statewide ballot. The first was an education lockbox. Essentially, all of the casino revenues would be put into a separate pot of money, and that pot of money will be used to supplement and not supplant education funding. This measure was approved overwhelmingly. I think you you heard it here. I mean, not that this was a risky call, but I think uh, I think we put a pin in that and said that'll pass easy, and it sure did. The second ballot question was same day voter registration. We know sixteen states in the District of Columbia have a process for same day voter registration. Uh, in Maryland, we do have voter registration during the primary elections, so you can register then. But this initiative also passed with about two thirds of the vote. So now here in Maryland, as long as the General Assembly passes a bill to enact a process for same-day voter registration, which we expect they'll do, you'll be able to register and vote on Election Day at your local polling place. I mean, a lot of attention nationwide for voter access issues, and we've seen this in other states about this becoming a matter of controversy. You know, close election in Georgia. Is it possible that part of what happened there is a function of who's who's eligible to vote and who's on the rolls and those sorts of things? But states going back and forth with some states saying you have to have certain kinds of ID or you have to demonstrate your eligibility to vote or we'll, we'll kick you off the voter rolls if you haven't voted for a certain number of elections, other things like that. 
other states moving in the opposite direction saying we'll do automatic or presumptive voter registration or same day or things of that nature. Um, the, the fight over election administration and the voter rolls themselves has become a complicated but important proxy war for who wins elections. It's, it's big politics there. Yeah, it is interesting, though, because the General Assembly passed a bill last year, Michael, for automatic voter registration. So I wonder how that will impact same-day voter registration. Yeah, I think I think the mentality of the leadership pushing these issues in Maryland has basically been belt, suspenders, and whatever else you got. So let's make sure everybody has an opportunity to vote and, you know, do, you know, you know, make sure, make sure it's a clean process and people, you know, demonstrate their eligibility and so forth. But, um, you know, if, if you're inclined to vote and you're eligible, you should get in, you know, any way we can do that. So Natasha, moving on from the ballot questions, we knew those were going to be popular. Speaking of popular, how did Francho and Frosch do in this election? Oh, yeah. Francho and Frosch are coming back. So, so Peter <laughs> Francho, the Maryland Comptroller, yeah. and Brian Frosch, Maryland's Attorney General, they, they did pretty well. Yeah, they did. So was Francho, again, the top vote-getter in Maryland? Uh, and I think he did really well across the state. Same with Brian Frosch. And, and probably, you know, the strong turnout, relatively strong turnout, probably plays in the favor of a down-ballot Democrat. So almost independent of what the race is. And some people will probably point toward, you know, Brian Frost is engaged in these lawsuits on federal issues and has been pointing out whether the federal government out, you know, outstripped its authority. And some of these things are focused on President Trump. Um, Okay, that may or may not have been what the election, you know, a few clicks down the ballot was really about. In some cases, it may just have been about D and R. Um, you know, we heard we, we you know, there was there was talk for a few weeks of momentum for Craig Wolf making the attorney general race a, a contested one, and maybe it wouldn't be fifty one forty nine, but maybe it'll be fifty five forty five or right. fifty four forty six or something like that, and it ends up being not that close. Attorney General Frosch worked and put in, you know, put in the effort and so forth. But um, a big groundswell of of voters, many of them Democrats, uh, certainly plays a role in a race like that. So actually, while we're talking about statewide elections, I think it would be a great time to point out that we have a number of county elected officials that uh, ran in statewide races. And it's always a great thing when you have someone that has served in local government moving on to a position as a senator or a delegate, you know, because they take that knowledge of what happens in local government, what's important to local governments, what issues and challenges um, we face. And so at MAKO, of course, we love it. And so we've seen a couple, Obi Patterson coming back to Annapolis to serve as senator um, out of uh, Prince George's County. Also Prince George's County, Andrea Harrison winning a delegate seat, as well as uh, Deborah Davis out of Charles County and Jen Terraza out of Howard County. And uh, throwback local elected official Courtney Watson, who previously served on the Howard County Council. I think Andrea Harrison might have been the top vote getter of all the delegates. I, I start, I didn't start looking until I got some way down the list and so forth. She's not, she's way up there. She, yeah, yeah. she had 28,000, 29,000 votes. So, uh, so nonetheless, you know, good on her. She hadn't been on that ballot before and, uh, and just crushed it last night. So. Yeah. Also Jessica Feldmark, who was a Howard council staffer coming in. I mean, right. that's, that's great. I mean, I know when I'm at a testimony table testifying, it's always good to look up and see folks who, you know, have served in County government because right. they get it. They've mm-hmm. been on the ground. They understand. 
whatever they do in Annapolis is going to affect counties statewide. And that, that perspective I think is invaluable. Yeah. I mean, she's, she, she's been one of the, one of the people coming to the, uh, the Mako good government book club. So, you know, in addition to knowing, you know, nuts and bolts of county government and, and the, you know, the functions of the county council and that sort of stuff, she's also got, you know, got an, an aptitude for that kind of stuff. So that'll, you know, she'll be a pleasure to work with too. I think, I think we're going to have a nice wave of new elected officials with that background and hopefully that'll spread to their peers who don't have that background. We're going to go ahead and take a break. As we mentioned earlier, if you're looking for more information on specifics such as numbers and percentages, head to our blog. That's conduitstreet.mdcounties.org. We have every race there covered for you, in-depth analysis. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the interesting county results after the break. Back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. We've talked about some of the state results, and we are Mako, so I guess we should talk about our bread and butter, the county races. And Natasha, we talked a little bit in the first half of the show about some of these races and the, the governor's effect on those races or lack thereof. Let's get a little bit more into the race between Calvin Ball and Alan Kittleman in Howard County. Calvin Ball became Howard County's first African-American county executive, um, and he's a familiar face. He's not someone new to the county at all. He's a 12-year veteran of the county council, has close ties uh, with MAKO, um, being the founder of the diversity caucus at MAKO. And so I think that's an interesting race there. So, Michael, it's not like Calvin Ball is going to have to jump in here and learn how county government works. Right. No, I think, I mean, this is, this is insider versus insider on a certain level. And I mean, Howard County, we knew was going to be an interesting race. Just, I mean, the demographics of that county lean democratic anyhow. And uh, County Executive Kittleman was an unusual Republican to be able to contest in there. He's got family ties that go way back. I think his views really weren't too bad of a fit for a lot of Howard County Democrats. So it wasn't a shock that he was able to get in, but to hold on in a year where there may have been some blue tailwinds um, you know, proved to be too much. And and maybe you know the governor wasn't able to, to lend the you know, the, the help that might have made the difference. But this is a close race, uh, no surprise there, and, and not a shock. And I do want to mention, I don't know if you all saw the, the picture or the video of this, but we see so much divisiveness and, and vitriol, but Alan Kittleman showed up at Calvin Ball's uh, headquarters when Calvin had won, and he gave him a big hug and he conceded in person. And I think right. that was really classy, and that's the kind of thing that we should be striving for. It was really neat to see him show up and concede in person, gave him a huge hug. It's just really good, really cool to see, I think. There's, there's a big civility movement that's caught on in lots of places. Howard County is definitely one of them, and that resonates. I mean, it's, and it's also no surprise if you know Alan Kittle. Absolutely. Choose civility. That is a big movement, but absolutely not a surprise. He's a classy guy. All right, let's jump in to another race we talked about a little bit earlier. Steve Shu and Stuart Pittman. Stuart Pittman emerges from that race. He is a Democrat. 
He beat Steve Shue, the incumbent. He's an outsider, right? But he does have deep roots in the county, and his name is certainly well-known. I mean, a, a relative outsider in, in the sense that he hadn't run for elected office before, but he wasn't. he's not new to politics. He's been engaged in politics and policy both elsewhere and back here in, in Maryland. So it, it's not like you know he just wandered into a meeting of the Central Committee and said— You've never met me, but now I want to run. But nonetheless, um, you know, becoming becoming the you know the party nomination for what seemed at the time like a long shot bid for county exec, and I think everybody recognized that this was a spirited race and it was looking close. And uh, lo and behold, on election night, uh, he pulled ahead and, and won by you know several points. He did well in rural areas. He's big in the farming community. He is a farmer. Again, that, that's an interesting dynamic for a Democrat to do really well in the rural parts of Anne Arundel County. Mm-hmm. So Anne Arundel's a tricky county demographically as well. So you know, we saw we saw interesting changes going on in in, in Anne Arundel. You know, close race for county executive uh, countywide, and and also you know close races in the in the uh, county council that are going to make a difference for the tilt. You know, the partisan tilt of the county government going ahead. Yeah, I think that might be the biggest story at the county level is that Anne Arundel has gone from a Republican county executive and a Republican controlled county council or majority county council. Now you have a Democratic county executive and then a Democratic majority on the county council. That's a huge swing. It is. I mean, if you're if you're checking reds and blues, then that's that's probably one of the more substantive swings out there that, you know, that and I guess the Howard County race, too. Let's get into Johnny Olszewski and Al Redmer, Natasha, just a little bit about that race. Johnny O lost his race for state Senate. He's back. He has name recognition. But I think it's interesting that he kind of stepped away from politics. But now he comes right back in and he wins this race for county executive in Baltimore County. It's pretty fascinating to see his trajectory and then being able to come back and create this grassroots campaign and actually win this race. Right. And, you know, he has long ties to Baltimore County and Dundalk being a native there and his father being a council member. Um, like you said, he, he was in the House of Delegates and as part of that comeback, started the Better Baltimore County Grassroots Coalition. Um, and, you know, during the primaries, he had a really tight race between him, Vicki Almond, and um, Brochen, and, you know, squeaked out that win by just a few votes. And yeah, so... There were, there were recounts there. It was really close. Right. right. And then, you know, to come to the general election and to face Al Redmer, works in the Hogan administration and had Hogan's backing, it was certainly a, a race everyone was watching very closely. Very, um, very visible backing, yeah. too. I mean, I mean, Hogan did endorsements in a variety of places around the state, but, but his... His visible support for Al Redmer was right out there. That was, I think, that was a centerpiece race there. It was, I mean, it was a long shot. The, there's, there's a, there's a registration advantage for Democrats, but um, Governor Hogan knew he was going to carry Baltimore County, so you know, maybe thought he had an opportunity to carry Al Redmer along with him. Yeah, but Michael, I mean, this was, I mean, we had billed this as a nail biter, right? I think on our last episode, but Johnny O wins by 15 points. Are you surprised right. by that margin? I'm surprised. I mean, I, I mean, I'd start. I'd started hearing leading up to the election, people saying it looks good for the Democrats there, despite what you're reading. But I mean, there's always a lot of smoke being blown around campaigns. People do internal polls, and you know, sometimes, sometimes you say those things to get motivated. So you know, you you, you run these things talking about we're really getting it done out here. So it's it's always tough to know if you're not engaged in the campaign. 
you know, what's, what's real and what's not. We never saw, at least I never saw a publicly shared poll, you know, in the newspapers, that sort of thing. Um, after the primary, there was a, a, a big high profile poll in the, in the primaries, uh, before, you know, before the primary elections. And I think that poll was really consequential. Uh, Redmer was losing in the Republican primary, according to that poll. And that was sort of a wake up call for his campaign. And then the three-way race ended up attracting lots of attention between the other two candidates that Senator Broshan and council member Allman ended up, you know, with fling, you know, the slings and arrows being, being thrown back and forth between the two of them. Johnny O to some degree benefited from the civility angle by staying out of the muck and just talking about his vision. It's also interesting. We said Johnny O won by 15 points. Larry Hogan won 61.7% of the vote in Baltimore County. So this is another situation where Hogan does really well, but that does not translate to Al Redmer. Yeah, I mean, the psychology of, I mean, we know about straight ticket voters, and we know there are people who claim, I vote for the best person. But we all have limits to our, you know, to our ability to come in with knowledge about everything on the ballot and so forth. So that's an awful lot of people who came in and clicked in one column then switched to another column for races that are of pretty big consequence. All right. So in Frederick County, Jan Gardner defeats Kathy Afzali, Delegate Afzali, Jan Gardner, the incumbent. This was another one uh, that is closer than we thought it would be. I mean, it ends up being what seven seven points, seven is, points. is the final final margin. Um, you know, close enough to 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 be you know for some pacing. I'm sure that that both sides had had an anxious evening waiting for official results to come out. Um, I think you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the nature of what what's happening in Frederick County, but um, you know, uh, Jan Gardner is a well known name in that county. And that may have been the big difference there. She's she's already served as county executive. She was the first elected county executive in the county. But prior to that, she had multiple terms as a county commissioner, um, you know, running countywide. So she didn't just represent a little district. She was representing the full the full county government. There's an awful lot of people who've seen her name on a ballot and voted for her. Uh, that muscle memory is awfully helpful politically. You you come out of an election winning by a few points in a tough situation. You look to things like that and saying that may have been you know, really the difference. Uh, Delgado Sally ran a tough race, and you know this this could have gone either way with a less experienced candidate than Jan Gardner might have. Moving to Montgomery County, we talked about the dynamics of this race. It's interesting. Mark Elrich wins the Democratic primary immediately. Nancy Florine, who is also a sitting council member, announces that. She's going to jump into the ring. She switches to an independent and announces that she will switch back to being a Democrat as soon as she wins a uh, county executive race. And then Robin Ficker, the Republican there. But, uh, Michael, we knew that this would be interesting with Elrich and Florine on the ballot. But it, it turns out the Florine effect was not very significant. And it, it's really difficult, I think, to win without that DRR next to your name. It definitely is, right? So insiders, and I, I think we fell victim to this to some degree, taking a look at the amount of money that Nancy Florine had been able, been able to raise in, pre, in pretty, yeah. you know, in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I mean, it's a big county. We understand it's an expensive thing to do, but so she had real support and we saw established Democrats saying, you know, 
you know, vote your conscience as opposed to vote your party, things like that. So I don't think anybody had a really clear idea how this was going to go. I think when we talked about this before, we may have said that council member Elrich was the favorite, but we certainly didn't want to say this was, you know, don't bother watching. Uh, so this ends up being, you know, more or less a 60, 20, 20 race, um, and not something that was a nail biter. No one's pacing the floors over that late into Tuesday night. So, you know, that's, you, you learn the power of, you know, both incumbency, but also just the imprimatur of having the D or the R behind your name. It means a lot to an awful lot of people. And Natasha and Prince George's County also not closed. Angela Alsobrooks wins county executive there. Right. And she's also another first being the first African-American woman to be county executive in Prince George's. Yeah. So she did very well. Barry Glassman in Harford County, he did very well. He's another locally elected representative who has a lot of name recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, he's got he's got some catchy stuff, but he, he's someone everybody is used to seeing Barry at the uh, at the county fair and so forth. So he's he's definitely that guy. Right? The sheep. If you're if you're wondering about Barry Glassman, just look up Barry Glassman sheep. You look up that great campaign sign. It's one of the best ones out there. Barry. <laughs> we love it. We love it. Okay, and finally, in Wicomico County, Bob Culver wins his county executive race pretty handily as well. Yeah, he, he benefited from sort of a fracture of opposition, had an independent opponent as well as a Democratic opponent. And between the two of them, they split up what what I guess might have been a formidable opposition. If he were in a two-way race, I don't know if that would have been 60-40 or 52-48, but having two people running against an incumbent um, played to his advantage as well. But uh, he ended up uh, having a pretty comfortable Tuesday night as well. Okay, so Michael and Natasha, we have only two counties that are sending back their full complement of elected officials for the next term. This is not unusual. We see a lot of turnover in Maryland, but let's talk about those two counties and they're both three commissioner counties, correct? Right. So we got different structures of government in Maryland, but but a number of counties still have county commissioners who serve as both the executive and legislative branch. Uh, Garrett County has three commissioners. Uh, They turned everybody out in 2014. They did a complete turnover, but apparently they're happy with how that worked out because all three of them got reelected in 18. Caroline County also has the three county commissioners and all three of them made it through this go around as well. So Natasha, we've heard a lot about a blue wave and Nationally, I I don't think we necessarily saw the full blue wave. But, you know, nationally, the Democrats took back the House of Representatives. Here in Maryland, did we see sort of the same thing? I mean, we we saw some small gains here and there for, for Democrats in the House. We mentioned earlier that the Republicans were not able to be successful on their drive for five. But it seems like here in Maryland, red stayed red, blue stayed blue. And, and not much more to it other than a few gains here and there. Right, right. There was a net gain of six seats to the Democrats on, on the county level in Charles County. The Democrats state, state Democratic, Montgomery, Prince George's, and the majorities that were held in Baltimore and Howard County also held Democratic. So, so not too significant, Michael. This is not the blue wave that a lot of folks were talking about, or a red wave for yeah. that matter. It, it also wasn't. I had been thinking that we might see uh, some of the counties that went from being a mix of red and blue to all red, particularly in the 2010 election, which was 
itself seen as a big, you know, sort of a red wave election that, that I thought this year might undo some of that. Um, and, you know, we had talked a little bit about the Southern Maryland counties, like, like Calvert or St. Mary's, uh, Washington County, Cecil County, Talbot, uh, places like that as candidates for a change like that. And in, in many of those cases, those are counties that went from a mix to all red, particularly in 2010. Yeah, we ended up with the Talbot County Council elects one Democrat out of five in in an at-large election. Um, so that's a change from all red to you know red with one blue dot. Okay, uh, but other than that, we had odds and ends. Uh, a, a mixed bag in, on the Dorchester County Council goes from three to two to two to three. Uh, that's probably not an earth-shaking move. We'll have to see what happens in, in Anne Arundel County. We referenced the, the county council there. That's a close race, but it looks like the council um, council in Anne Arundel shifts to four Democrats along with the Democratic County Executive. So that that could be a tone shift, but it's certainly not an election that people are going to look back on a generation from now and say, boy, that was the one that made the big political difference. And suddenly the Democrats took over or anything like that. It was, I don't think there's that, that sort of you know tone here. So certainly not maybe the regression that we expected from 2010 when that was such a significant event. We did not see that regression here in 2018. On the blue red axis, I don't think we saw that. We'll find out, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to have a, a conference in January, and we will probably get most of these. I think it ends up being 71 new elected officials from county government. We'll have most of them at the Hyatt in Dorchester County, you know, learning about the nuts and bolts of county government and talking with their peers and so forth. And yeah, we might find out a flavor that, that these people are more optimistic or they are younger or they're more tech savvy or they're more entrepreneurial or who knows what that there may be, there may be a wave here. It just may not be obvious from the stuff we see so far, which is who's red, who's blue, who won close, that kind of stuff. So yeah, maybe maybe we'll find out later that something really did happen and it's just different. I don't know. All right. So Michael, you teased earlier that we were going to talk a little bit more about Frederick County and the dynamics there. So let's get into that. And was there a purple wave in Frederick County? <laughs> I, I think, I mean, maybe just plant a flag in Frederick County. This is a purple county about, I mean, this election was about as purple as it gets. Um, I mean, going back to talking about Jan Gardner as a relatively popular incumbent. So she wins the countywide race for county exec by, you know, single digits um, over someone who's never run countywide before. I mean, Kathy Avsali has run in a delegate district, but doesn't have the exposure that Jan did. So you now they end up separated by a handful of points, ends up being seven points. Uh, but they have a seven-member council. Two members are at large. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the four major party candidates who ran for those at-large seats. Two Republicans, two Democrats. Two Republicans, two Democrats, and they ended up split first to fourth, was split by something like 2%, um, just literally just handfuls of votes separating first place and last place. The county ends up electing for their at-large seats one Dem and one Republican, and now you've got a sitting Democrat 
on the council, uh, Jerry Donald's seat is that one looks too close to call. I think, you know, with the unofficial tallies before you get into absentees and, and provisionals, um, Jerry's losing. So he's a Democrat. That would be a flip from blue to red. Uh, so that would keep, that would keep the council as a, the thinnest of four to three margins with Republicans in the majority, if that holds up, that's about as close as you can fathom that in the countywide race, maybe the, the exposure factor makes a difference and, and wins for the incumbent by a few points. The council goes the other way. The at-large seats are split right down the middle. I mean, that is as deep purple as a county can possibly be. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a little bit of a change from where this county was a couple of cycles ago when everybody who had an R by his or her name got elected. And that's not yeah. necessarily a result of this being different districts. You know, you have D's and R's. This is, these are at-large seats. So this is the entire county voting. And maybe, you know, Anne Arundel would be exhibit B in, in a jurisdiction that doesn't have a huge, I don't even know what the registration advantage is. I mean, the last couple, last couple countywide races made you think that Republicans were safe countywide here. Maybe not the case after this election. Yes. Yeah, Certainly a shift there and fascinating. I'm, I'm sure political scientists would love to plant a flag in Frederick County and Anne Arundel County right. and, and take a look at what's right. going on. Natasha, some of what we've talked about today shows that it's really hard to win on a ballot without an R or a D next to your name. Certainly, you know, we have independents, we had green parties, uh, folks running, but it's really difficult. And we saw it in Montgomery County. We've seen it with other races. You know, this is not necessarily the, the Ross Perot effect that we saw years ago where it, it did have an impact and it was able to swing an election, but really difficult to win without a party affiliation. Right. And I, I do think you saw a lot of independents and Green Party candidates um, in these races. I know at least in Baltimore City, there was a fair amount of Green Party candidates running in, in their races. Ultimately, Democrats in Baltimore City won their races, um, but you certainly did see a lot of third-party candidates, and we talked about Nancy Florine, and there are some others in the state as well, right, Michael? Right. I mean, you know, Bud Otis, who who is is the sitting chair of the Frederick County Council, he was elected four years ago as a Republican and sort of you know, had a falling out with some of the leadership of the party and, and refiled as an independent and ran in this election as an independent. Um, he was in that race that we talked about as being the nail biter as a as a countywide at large race, but as, as he was you know up the track, um, really not a meaningful factor. I, I think I mean he's a familiar name even before his time on the on the county council there. He's he's you know worked for for uh, Roscoe Bartlett and as a familiar name in Western Maryland politics, uh, but couldn't couldn't chart. As a as a as an independent or unaffiliated candidate, um, you know, Mr. Mako John Barr, who's a 12 year veteran in Washington County, uh, decided to run as an independent this go round, and you know we talked about that as an interesting race to watch where. Perhaps Washington County would elect one or two Democrats. They might elect one or two independents. They could have a whole potpourri up there. End of the day, five Republicans. The next five vote getters are the five Democrats. And John Barr and former County Commissioner William McKinley, both of them up the track. It's just really, really hard to win without a major party letter behind you. Fascinating, though, because we, we mentioned earlier that it seems like a lot of folks here in Maryland, a lot of voters were not just going straight party ticket. They were looking at right. the names. Right. Right. So this is sort of contradictory to that. 
because these are two gentlemen who have name recognition. People know who they are. You know, people didn't look at those names and say, you know what, I know that name. I like that person. I'm going to vote for them. We don't know why, but certainly an interesting dynamic. Right. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Before we go, Michael and Natasha, any closing thoughts? I think things went relatively well. We saw a few issues with, you know, being short on ballots and some lines. But for the most part, I think the state did a really good job in this general election. Looks, I mean, it looks that way to me that, uh, you know, we, we don't have anybody's hair on fire the day after. So that's a pretty good sign. There's frustration about how long it took for information to get out and some people, you know, being there after hours and, and so forth. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out if there are, there are bigger grievances, but that's, that's good to see that process wise, you know, we don't have, you know, concerns about the rules of the game. Yeah. I know that our County folks worked very hard with the state board, you know, elections are local, so we work with the state, but it seems like they did a, a very good job. Natasha, any closing thoughts before? Yeah, we no, I, I'd agree with that. I think we did a good job, and it was an interesting uh, election to to watch. All right, so that'll do it. Again, if you're looking for more information, check out our blog. Tons of information there. Also, our social media, Twitter and Facebook. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, we certainly appreciate you giving us a like and subscribing, telling your friends about it. It helps us get our message out. With that, for Michael and Natasha, this is Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon.